I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're talking to the remarkable Jean-Paul Flintoff, writer, artist, public speaker, master of the arts at large. Jean-Paul, that's a pretty inadequate introduction. Perhaps a better way of describing you is that your whole life appears to be a kind of happening. Can you explain what you do? Because I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I think you're not the only one. Thank you for having me on. I'm My name's Jean-Paul Flintoff. Most of my career, I number of years, I would say I've been a journalist, but I also do performance, I write books, and I'm increasingly doing arts, visual arts. Uh, so something, something in the mix there. I've been troubled too by what do I do? And I think the central thing is telling stories and, and self-expression. Which I suppose is what we, we do too, really, in mm. lots of ways. What's your background? You know, was writing journalism the first thing you did? After you left school or what? It was, but I should go back slightly because I always actually wanted to be an artist and I had a very discouraging O-level interview with someone who said, oh, it's very hard to be an artist. And I thought, as teenagers maybe do, or maybe it was just me, I thought that meant you can't be an artist. So I thought I'll go and do something easier, like be a writer. <laughs> and uh, so I, I did also love writing. And my English teachers were very inspiring, did English at university and left university thinking I'll be a poet because all the people I studied were poets. And then I realised after about three days that you don't make any money as a poet. So I became a journalist, which is <laughs> as if you make lots of money there. But you did make more then. I, I I was very, very lucky that after a little while of being a, a specialist, I became a, a general magazine writer on the Financial Times. So I could sort of write about anything I liked. Actually, it's not a similar story to you, please, in that you started off with art. I also went to art college and I was also discouraged, told, oh, you can never make a living from that. So I actually went along for an interview with Vogue magazine to work in their art department and they offered me a job subbing instead. So really? I sort of got into journalism that way but what how, how many art people do they think are good at subbing well they said oh we see from your cv you've got um english a level i think this was before i talked i talked to the sort of hr department or whatever it is first before seeing the right. person and um they said you know we've got a job going there would you be interested nothing in the art department so i said yeah Okay. Did you realise at that time that you were sort of stepping onto a certain tram line and that it you can't kind of jump off and go onto the art tram line very easily? No, no, I never did go back on the art one at all. Well, 30 years went by before you picked up a paintbrush again. That's you? right, yeah. But um, you are doing it again now, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yes, for myself, really. I've sold a couple of things, but not really seriously. I, I found it very hard to really, really, I did initially, but I don't so much now, to think I'm doing art other than just for myself. But eventually, if I just kept on doing it, I thought, well, I'm the best person to be doing it for. And if anyone else likes it, that's a bonus. But we see that you've been doing online, you're offering online portraits of people. Is that popular? Well, the funny thing is that I, I started just, just before lockdown, I was in, asked to do portraits of the people in my local parish. So I, I drew 35 people in different places in the church. And then just as that was about to come out, lockdown arrived and a members club in Soho, the union club, asked if I would draw members of the club as a kind of let's keep everybody 
in each other's mind and also fundraising. So they paid for me to draw their portrait live on Zoom and the money went to Soho Homeless Charity. And it was such fun because I, I would have these people who I, I didn't know just pop onto my screen. I had to draw them there and then and talk to them. And one of them was late, sort of slightly missed the deadline. And it was a person called Olivia Coleman. <laughs> and and I thought, okay, well, that, that she, she said, hi, it's Olivia Coleman. I'm sorry I missed the deadline. I thought, well, okay, yeah, sure. We'll doesn't matter about the deadline. But I had no idea whether it was like the Olivia Coleman or not until the last minute. And I didn't want to let on my face it. I didn't want any sign of disappointment if it was another the <laughs> Olivia Coleman. And so she, when the one who has actually won an Academy Award popped up on my Zoom, it was just massively intimidating, but also gratifying. And like everyone else, they were all great, but I had a nice conversation and drew her picture. So that was strange. But it was also a little bit like being a journalist and doing an interview. It was like this. It was like me seeing you and having a chat and sharing what's going on. But also a little bit about like sitting beneath the Eiffel Tower and drawing pictures of cartoon pictures of people who came by. Very, very much like that. You don't exactly choose who you're doing or what their be- setting's going to be. One, one thing I learned quite quickly was that if you draw people on Zoom, they're likely to be fairly square on to you. With, you, you get head, shoulders and a fairly plain background. So I started asking people if they would sit well back from the computer and sort of turn sideways in their chair to try to channel my own inner um, National Portrait Gallery idea about what a good composition was. And they they were much better. But it felt strange for everyone to be on Zoom, but sort of sitting way back over there. Well, the portrait of Olivia Coleman is great. Did she like it? She seemed really, really delighted. Yeah, I, I, I was very happy. What a nice person. And you've done other virtual things as well. You've been on a virtual pilgrimage. Oh, yes. So this is this is something I hope that we might talk about because this is after all travel. And this was another thing that I wanted to do in real life last year. Having studied English, I, I have always loved the idea of Geoffrey Chaucer and telling stories as you go somewhere. It's important to do a pilgrimage because it, it gives you a reason to be walking. And so you end up somewhere. So you've got a sense of direction. But within that sense of direction, you can poodle about and do all sorts of things. And I love the fact that Chaucer has all these different stories that are slightly competing to tell the best story. So I thought I will do a pilgrimage from where I am in northwest London to Canterbury in April. And somehow, I don't know how it's going to work, but I'll get some storytellers to join me. They might join me on the odd day or something, and I'll record some stories. And of course, that didn't happen. So then I went on to Google Maps, which on a big screen, I've got a relatively big Mac screen. On Google Maps, you can do street view. So I started walking down Street View from home in the general direction of Canterbury. And I had people join me on Zoom. So I was doing it. I mean, I was doing a virtual pilgrimage. The trouble is that there's no discipline about being online because you can go anywhere you like. So I ended up going completely the wrong direction towards Cookham because I wanted to go and see uh, where Stanley Spencer was, which is, I mean, that's northwest. That's not the direction of Canterbury at all. I had to do a detour via Winchester. You're in Winchester, aren't you? Yes, yeah, Yeah. we are. So I spent about a year of my very, very early life in Winchester. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Winchester and have a look around there. And then it all sort of rather petered out because I didn't have the discipline to make a map or a plan. So this year, I really mean to. Lockdown or no lockdown, I'm going to do a virtual pilgrimage in April. But you don't get much exercise. It's only for your fingers, not your legs. 
Well, you do get exercise if if you do this thing that I've started doing, which is working for 25 minutes and then five minutes of press-ups or, or lunges or something, and then work for 25 minutes and then five minutes more press-ups or lunges or squats or whatever. So I, I'm actually getting quite a lot of exercise at the moment. So would you st- if 25 minutes came up, do you stop in the middle of an interview and then do your press-ups or do you wait for the end of the interview? It's only the work where I'm not actually live with someone like this. <laughs> Although that could be quite a good idea if I did that. I bet you've had no one on the podcast who stopped just to do some press-ups. No, we've had some fairly strange people, but we've had some fairly strange polar explorers and things who tell us terrible things about falling in the sea and what it's like in the Arctic Ocean. But uh, we've never had any any, um, virtual press-ups, no. I'd be happy to do it, but you'd you'd probably have to cover me audio-wise so that the the listener didn't disappear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like something to try anyway. <laughs> well, now you've been described as the most practical dreamer I know. And it was Harold Pinto who said, very good, very funny. In fact, it made me laugh. What made him laugh? In 2003, the day of the big march on, you know, the big protest against the invasion of Iraq that day, I published a story in the FT about Harold Pinto. And it was sort of, I, I, it was, it was a, they have a slot called Lunch with the FT. And so I met painter near the hospital where he'd just been treated for the cancer that I think probably was what he died of. And I I wrote an article. Anyway, I had a sort of a joke at the end about most people at the time hated Pinter's politics but loved his writing. And I said it's just possible that for some people it's the other way around. I think that was the thing that he laughed at most. But anyway, he left this message on my on my answer phone, which I treasured, which is like yeah, the Nobel Prize winning Harold Pinter said that some of my writing made him laugh. Is that after that, what do you need to do? Nothing. Exactly. Thank goodness for that art teacher. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably the best you can ever get, isn't it? Harold Pinter saying something like that. I suppose suppose the next step is to get multiple Nobel Prize winners. Have you got the actual audio telephone message? No, I really, I really wish I had. I prized it for such a long time. And then when you change answer phones, that's it. That's it, yeah. It was one of those old landline machines. How annoying. But tell us about some of your actual travels. One that caught my eye is you um, hunted and caught a python in the Everglades. Yeah, well, and I know you asked if I can send photos. I do have a picture of me with a python around my neck, a live one. But um, so I was thinking before coming on here, I was thinking, what I've always felt slightly like a fraud with travel writing because I don't think I'm, although I've done lots of stories which which were straightforwardly a story about travel. I mean, it was sort of, this is where you can go and you can do these things and have a break. I've always had this nagging fear that I wasn't making it enough of a story. And I've got to come up with some amazing yarn or I've got to find the people who are doing something extraordinary and write about them rather than just say, here is a place and it's really nice and interesting. Anyway, so I came up with this list that I sent you and and top of the list, I suppose, is going hunting python in Florida because it's kind of, you just have to say those words. It's quite exciting. And essentially, there there was a hurricane that hit Florida in, I think it was the 80s, but maybe in the 90s. And lots of pet pythons got loose. And now they were reckoned to be hundreds of thousands of python that can be two, 20 meters long not 20 20 meters very long anyway maybe even 20 meters i mean just really long they can eat humans they can eat crocodile they do they found one that had a crocodile inside it <laughs> and not a small crocodile either anyway so so the, the more, of a, more of an alligator 
Both, because there are crocodiles in the Everglades too. There are any number of wild animals have been allowed. That's where people go to take the animals that they can't control. So they just dump them in the Everglades. So the, the python have been mating and having oodles of little python, which are sweet maybe at the beginning, but not so much later. And they've slithered all over the Everglades. And the, the, they've eaten, in some cases, about 98% of the native furry and feathered Florida animals. So, I mean, this is really, really a crisis. The trouble is, there's really no way of catching them. So, so that the state has engaged a number of successful hunters who really know what they're doing. But if you imagine the Everglades of this enormous terrain, uh, over which you can travel a, a, a certain number of levees, which are these raised roads that you, you might be at several miles of marsh and so on that you're never going to go into because of all the alligators and so on. And then you drive along the levee. So the only way the hunters really ever catch any python is, is if they happen to be crossing the levee at that moment. So it's really a utterly hopeless task, but it's still quite exciting. And I did follow an extremely brave chap into the marsh where he dived into the water. I mean, this is water sort of a metre high. And he dived in and grabbed this python by the neck, but just behind the head. That's how you have to do it, because otherwise you're finished. And he wrestled with it. It was quite a big python. I thought, this is very exciting stuff. So I wrote about that um, for a magazine. The, the, the Economist has a magazine called something like 1732, but it's not 1732, it's 1843 or something. It's one of those years that was very important. <laughs> wow, that's an amazing experience. So when you had it around your neck, was it easy to pry it off your neck? It wasn't too hard. This one was probably about th three metres long, so it was relatively small. And I was assured, because I was with two men who had guns, that it was going to be okay, and I'd seen one of them doing it too. And he said, basically, it's only really wrapping itself around your neck because it needs not to fall off. So it's, it's not necessarily trying to get you. And I had it by the by the head, so I was holding its head. So the rest was just, well, it was a python, frankly, it was around my neck. Just good and as bad as it sounds. We've had snakes to children's birthday parties before now. When we used to live in London, you could actually get someone to bring a snake. I can't remember, snake, yeah, I can't remember what type of snakes they were. Was it because you didn't like the children? <laughs> It was little boys, and they they loved it. You lie them oh, on. I see. You can do it now. When you lie them on, there's a line, and the snakes slither across their stomach. Oh wow! <laughs> Great. <laughs> and then we've done that in Australia too, with rather not not actually uh, uh, touching the snakes, but some really nasty things, or things that kill you in forty five seconds. I wouldn't say played with them, but we could see them very close up. Right. Are they brightly coloured and? Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah, pretty they, looking. Yeah, very, yeah, beautiful actually. Yeah. yeah, I've always had a bit of a fear of snakes. A bigger one probably of spiders and snakes. But I do remember once in in the south of Australia, near Melbourne somewhere, in a, a vineyard, there was kind of a lot of straw on the ground, and I saw something move and in front of me. And then when there was a sort of track going up to where the car was, and this enormous snake, I can't remember what it was called now, sort of crossed in front of us. And the guy just sort of held up his hand and said, "Just wait." He's got just as much right to be here as you have. But if he does come too close, if he does bite you, we, we've probably got about a minute or two to get something into you. So what would it be? Some sort of adrenaline shot or something? It, well, I think it, I, I think it's a deadly poison snake. You know? so yeah, but they have the antidote. he got the antidote with it. Oh, the antidote. Okay. Well, I remember I remember many, many years ago, I was sort of um, hitchhiking through South America, and I had with me a snake bite kit that 
my mother had bought me from, it's still there, there's a, a shop in London, a very famous chemist called John Bell and Croydon. Oh, yes, yeah. Rigmore Street in London. Oh, yeah. she'd, she'd bought this for me, very terrified, you know, South America snakes, whatever. And it was it was uh, American, judging from the words on the instructions. And it involved a, a razor blade and two suction cups. And basically, whatever you do, if you're bitten, do not do the John Wayne thing and sort of bite get blood and suck it out because A, it won't help and B, it moves the poison around, so I'm told. But I did read the instructions and it said, having been bitten, kill the snake so you can show it to your physician. I thought, if you're in the middle of the Amazon jungle, it's not really likely it's going to happen, is it? Oh, you didn't have Zoom with you at the time. You couldn't sort of quickly phone into your GP on their latest... I'm afraid it was a bit before that sort of time. More right. like telex days. <laughs> Send a Morse code message describing it. Just changing to another travel experience, you once saved your daughter from falling into a smoking volcano. That sounds dangerous too. Well, this oh, well, this was the, the thing I was talking about where we tried desperate. I was trying desperately to make a story out of everything. We just wanted to go on holiday in Italy, but I thought, no, no, we've got to go and check out all the best volcanoes. So we'll do that. So we did Vesuvius, obviously, and we shouted and our tour guide taught us to sing some Italian song so that it would echo back up at us. And that was nice. And then we went to Etna and Etna... It wasn't how I imagined a volcano with just one hole. It seems to have holes all over the place. And they're all smoking and burning and gorging and gulping and making horrible noises. And my daughter at the time was very little and very easily grabbed by shiny stones. And there were lots of different types of colours on the stones at the time. And we had been told that, that probably if it wasn't Italy, they wouldn't have allowed us up because it wasn't it was so windy. But this being Italy, they were the Italians who said it. Being it, Italy, they didn't really care that, you know, just look out and be careful. It was really, really windy. And she reached out to get, so I think there were different metals in the stones. So the sort of iron made it a bit red and something else made it blue and another one was yellow. And she was collecting all these things. I said, can we maybe collect them another time? And she was a very unreasonable little girl at that moment. And she said... Uh, that she really wanted them. And then she started to slip towards this hole that was smoking and everything. And I grabbed her by the, I mean, it was the wind as well that pushed her. And I grabbed her by the hood and sort of stopped the fall. So I ended up with a great story about volcanoes, but it was quite nerve. I mean, it was quite seriously angst-making. And my wife was very cross. <laughs> but wasn't She wasn't with you? She was, but just cross about the whole general situation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we went up that day, didn't we? We walked up. Etna? Yeah, we've been to, yeah, yeah. exactly. There's an awful lot of ash and it was very, I felt very uncomfortable. Yeah. We've um, skied on some volcanoes too. Have you? In which countries? Uh, Japan and anywhere else? Uh, yeah, in uh, Chile. Wow. wow. And actually you... in North America too. It was more, not so much a volcano as a sort of um, vent in uh, a resort called Mammoth in uh, California. Well, we were skiing down beside this sort of event, and I thought this is a really dramatic moment to propose in deep powder snow. And I said, will you marry me? Turning towards her, lost my balance and fell over. So I had to wait until we got miles before I got a reply. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's really, I, so you really did it while moving? While moving, yeah. That's so great. It was, it was, you have to shout. Really mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was it like from your end? What, how, um, well, you, you just it? had to wait till... He got up and went to the bottom of the run, and then I answered, I think. <laughs> so you did hear? Yeah, I did. <laughs> wow, that really keeps you both on tenderhooks unnecessarily, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> but we've also skied in Japan where the guide said, do not fall, because at the bottom of this, there's, it must have been a vent. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, no, that was a, there was a river at the bottom. We were in a, 
some sort of cherry orchard and there was bamboo and very strange trees to be skiing through and and this guy who's actually he was a he was a kiwi a new zealander and he was married to a japanese girl and very fluent japanese and was the wonderful combination of the two actually because he we could really understand what he wanted to do and he was a great skier and we, we had a great time with him but we got to this very steep cherry orchard and there was then it got a bit steeper beneath and he said okay so we go down here and then we need to turn left where i turn left he said there is no margin for error because if you go if you fall to the right or go straight on you're going to a river which is always just under boiling point a thermal river stream and he said you just cook like an egg he said so don't do it we didn't <laughs> had anyone ever had that happen well i i didn't want to ask really <laughs> he didn't he wasn't going to tell us he, he wasn't going to tell us so. no but at, as as i'm not a, a skier how good did you have to be to i mean you obviously are good but did that worry you i mean well, you have to be a competent skier yeah, and this is we do it's what we do for a living a lot of the time so so you know we were okay like that but it does it it uh, focuses the mind when you're told something I, like Actually, always when you're told, do not fall here, it's, it's the wrong thing to say because that's exactly the moment you would like to fall, probably. And it's focusing on the thing that you don't want a person to do, and that's always bad advice because that's what they're thinking of. There's a famous French extreme skier who came up with the phrase of saying, bon pour la concentration, which he doesn't need no translation at all. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. Quite in, less exciting, I mean, less dangerous was flying into a storm system in Texas, or what, maybe that was dangerous. That was very dangerous, actually. I was, I was, gosh, this was just amazing because they don't get enough rain anymore and they're, they're drying all the aquifers under agricultural land in Texas. And so I found out that there was this guy with this plane who flies into storm systems and then his his tiny little plane has flares on the wings which he lets go and that causes the crystals or, or whatever the chemical in the flares causes the rain to to congeal into drops and then fall there's great rainfall it's called yeah. seeding isn't it i think yes yeah, so, so the cloud seeding and so i had this really strange experience of flying up in this tiny little plane in terribly shaky I mean, it was really being whacked around by the storm system. So we're flying into the storm system. And what actually happens is he goes into the storm system, which usually starts at about 5,000 feet, if memory serves, and then points to, points the plane down directly at the earth and turns the engine off. And the storm system itself sucks the plane up to 25,000 feet and, and blows it out. And in that 20,000 feet of the flares uh, seeding the clouds, that's where all the, the wonderful magic happens. But it's terrifying. Absolutely extraordinary business being shaken around in that thing. You need to have a lot of belief in, in, in the pilot. And I didn't really know that until I got there I sort of I hadn't quite thought through what was going to happen and I'd been flown all the way to America and you know, the magazine wanted this story and they had a camera crew so you can't sort of say oh actually I don't I don't think I want to do this it's all I could do was look at the guy and see that he had done it before and he survived yeah we often as journalists you get put in these situations where you have to go ahead and do it because that's why you're there but some of them can be a bit dodgy definitely yeah, we were once asked to climb the Grossglockner, which is Austria's highest mountain, in July, which we were assured would just be a sort of stroll up through the Edelweiss, you know, <laughs> singing, singing songs and sound of music. Of course, it couldn't have been a bigger lie, that. it was. You know, we, we knew we were in trouble when we got what was a, normally a, a mountain restaurant, a ski mountain restaurant in winter, and we got there about sort of midday, and it was snowing by then. 
And then we, uh, we had ice axes and crampons and things, and we crossed two glaciers. And then we ended up on separate ropes going up to this refuge. Uh, if we'd been on the same rope, we'd be divorced by now. But fortunately, on separate ropes, it was okay. And when we got to the top, there was a, we were helped sort of onto the surface by a Sherpa who was on a guest visit from Nepal. That, the biggest mistake I've ever made in saying to myself, oh, these guys say it's easy, it must be. No, it wasn't. <laughs> wow. And did you, I wonder whether you ever say, that's just not on. You shouldn't have done that. Have You, you have done that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. But uh, they, they just thought it was sort of normal. And they, I mean, it, it was not a sort of huge feat of mountaineering, I have to say, because when we got to the refuge where we were to spend the night, Fleece kept saying, oh, I can't wait to have a hot bath. It wasn't going to be that kind of refuge. I remember cleaning my teeth, standing out in the snow, putting toothpaste in a, putting my toothbrush rather pathetically into a bank of snow to get some water. But when we actually arrived and it was just about kind of getting dark, our 22-year-old guide from the local village who was with us said, said to the, the boss, he said, do you mind if I sort of pop down and see my girlfriend now and I'll be up, back up again by six o'clock tomorrow morning. And he just trotted off down the mountain again, you know, and came back up again. So for him, it was just a stroll, but it wasn't a stroll for us. We're not climbers. Skiers we may be, but we're not climbers. I suppose that's the funny thing, isn't it, is that travel is often about experiencing someone else's normal and it's not your normal. And I suppose the yearning is to be delighted by that that difference and sometimes the expectation is really not you know not met well, i think it's one of those things like if you're a, a football writer you don't have to play football in fact you don't ever have played football in your life and you can do that quite happily and if you're a ski writer you have to be able to do it and a few other things but uh, as a general travel writer you don't have to, have to be able to do all these gung-ho things at all no but you're expected to you're expected to okay. yeah so apart from writing, you also do quite a lot of public speaking? Yes. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. I, I've got a book coming out on public speaking. It's something I initially resisted writing. My agent suggested it. And I thought that any book on public speaking has to be some sort of terrible liar's manipulative manual of how to make everyone do what you want and everything. I, I told him I didn't like that idea. And I also thought, who am I to who am I to write such a book? And I think that my credential is that I really, really think about it a lot, and I and I have done it quite a lot, and I've had a lot of failures as well as successes, and I don't mind talking about those. But I insisted that I'll only write it if I'm allowed to call it a modest book about how to make an adequate speech. And I thought that would put him off, and I wouldn't have to bother. But actually, the more I thought about it, and the more he thought about it, the more we both thought there's definitely a space for a thing like this because most books don't have that title. And how do we get hold of this book? It's published in February by Short Books, it, which is part of Hachette. And I believe it's all on you know, Amazon and so on now. And we've just finished designing the cover. And it all feels a bit pointless at, at this time with lockdown, designing the back of the cover, because all anyone on Amazon is ever going to see is the front. But we have in, in we, you just have to take my word for it that it does have a back cover. The title again? The title is A Modest Book About How to Make an Adequate Speech. And did you draw the picture on the cover? Well, I did draw the cover and then they decided they wanted a different one. So the designer, uh, their in-house designer drew, I, well, I, I accept is a better cover. But I did draw the illustrations inside of a variety of different things, but some of them are famous speakers over time. Cicero, who, by the way, lots of people don't really 
give a hoot about the Cicero one way or the other, except they might vaguely know that he was a big rhetoric person and that he's good at public speaking. But he actually had his head chopped off and tongue uh, pins stuck in his tongue by, as it happens, Mark Antony and Mark Antony's wife because of something he'd said. So if you want to be better than Cicero, just make a speech and don't have that happen. <laughs> I think that's encouraging for anyone. <laughs> to change the subject, you got arrested in Kiev, whatever for. Just for taking a photograph in a tube station. I just really admired the the blue tiles on the on the wall in this tube station. It was a really strange experience, Kiev. This was quite a while ago. People didn't ever give eye contact in public. Nobody looked me in the eye in public, and hardly in the hotel. And it was bizarre. And um just an extremely suspicious atmosphere. And it was really a lovely place in many ways. It's got lots of history and, and beautiful, beautiful tube stations, really does. But I took this photograph and then these people who I didn't understand, who had those those very big Soviet-style military hats, you know, the big round thing. Two of them took me into this room and shouted at me in, in Ukrainian. And I tried my hardest to express myself. They didn't speak any English, so I switched to German. And then, interestingly, their their main focus, I I came to understand, was why did I speak German? They really, really hated that. And so after probably just looking like an idiot and offering them my camera, this was before mobile phones, so they could take the chip or anything, I said, I don't, you know, just want to go. But it was a funny room. It was there's a room in the tube station, but within the room, there was a there was a metal mesh cage, and that's what I sat in. So it wasn't a terrible arrest, because I was allowed to go after a while, but they shouted at me a lot, and I didn't know what was going to happen. It's quite frightening, though. That sort of incident is quite frightening, because you don't know what's going to happen next. No, exactly. It's not because of what's happening now, it's what could happen next. Yes. Been back to Kiev subsequently, and it, and, and it was much nicer. So... Where do you see yourself in the next few years? What do you think you'll be doing in, say, five years from now? I really hope I'll be doing a lot more art because that's really exciting me. And one other thing that I think I'd like to do, I'll just blurt it out because I haven't told anyone about it, but I'm really excited about it, is trying to get a whole lot of writers to work together over one 24-hour period to write a novel from scratch and get it printed by the next morning. I've got this kind of system in my mind, which I've borrowed from computer programmers who have to very quickly put together programming so different bits work on different programmers work on different bits. And I think if I found the right writers who were willing to do it and and editors and a layout person, you could sort of crash produce this thing. And then it would be a model for schools to do the same thing. So that possibly in five years' time I might be something to do with an organization that goes to schools and says it's annual writer novel day. And and then people in the school or maybe across different schools or something will will capture that same thing. So that as as you said, Felice earlier with with Vogue, you could have people who are just sort of doing the art on the book, and you could have someone doing the subbing on the book, and you could have someone actually writing a framework for the plot, and someone taking well, I'll do Act One, Scene Three, and I'll do Act One, Scene Five, and then you have to have someone coordinating it all, which is such a mind-boggling, pointless task. But I think people would learn a lot about collaboration and about how stories are told and about all of those other things like editing and design. Sounds like a good idea. That sounds like a great idea, actually, yeah. Thank you. you get all sorts of interesting authors to, to involve themselves. That you, I mean, what do you, what do you see the, the outline of the plot being? Is it a, a detective story or a romantic novel? Well, this is- Whatever. Well, this is exactly, you've, you've put your finger on it, because I think if it were a repeated thing, you would have a sort of a guest comes in. So maybe, I don't know, 
fantasy land. J.K. Rowling would come in one year and say, I'll do the basic plot outline and then it's over to you. So maybe they would sort of set a theme. My original idea was that you could you could take a framework such as the the loosest possible framework from let's say a Shakespeare play. You say it's going to be basically that story, but we can change the century, we can change the gender, we can change all sorts of things, but we've got to follow more or less that story just to give people some kind of a, a, a rope to climb up that mountain. If people want to find you, have you got a website? Yes, my website is flintoff.org. So my my surname is Flintoff like the cricketer, turned TV personality. Sorry, I should explain to our listeners in the United States and elsewhere who know as much about cricket as I do about baseball. Freddie Flintoff is a UK national hero with bat and ball. And are you related to Freddie Flintoff? cousin once removed and the editor of the Sunday Times was very pleased about that. So in 2005, when we were about to win the Ashes, he phoned my uh, the editor of the section I worked on and said, get Flint off to write about how he's related to Freddie. And I had 24 hours to find out if I was. And I found the grave of a man who died in 1832, William Flintoff, who was our mutual ancestor. And then I went and had tea with his grandparents. My second cousin once removed, maybe. Third cousin, I can't remember. And can you play cricket? Not really. Well, Flintoff, thank you very much for appearing on the show. And we wish you the very best of luck with your future travels and indeed your future book. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And and thanks for inspiring me to podcast. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com. Or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe.